Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition to win at work, drive your career forwards and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Monroe, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people, and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. So hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. As usual, I'm your host, Hannah Monroe, and with me today is Sarah Watson, who is Director of Finance and Technology at the Make-A-Wish Foundation in the UK. So welcome, Sarah. Wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you, Hannah. It's lovely to be here. And obviously, this coming up to Christmas is a wonderful time to to talk about everything that you guys do at Make-A-Wish. But before we start on uh, the, the, obviously, the foundation and what you guys do, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you end up in your role at Make-A-Wish? Well... It's a bit of an interesting story. So my my early career, Hannah, I, I my love was um, SMEs and startups, and 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 you might not think that there's a lot of correlation between those and charities, but actually, um, particularly with startups, lots of ambition and never enough funding. So quite good actually for moving into the the charitable sector. Um, so about about nine years ago now, um, I was looking for a challenge, and I met a really inspirational CEO of a um, of a charity. This was a blind um, children and babies charity and they had lots of assets and no money and they were facing a managed exit from the, the bank. And I thought, oh my goodness, this I didn't know these things happened. You know, what, what was going to happen to the services? What was going to happen to the children? And I thought, well, this will be interesting. I could learn lots of things and it's a nice, you know, it's a project piece. So that'll that'll take me back to, you know, where I, where I want to go. Um I never came back. I moved into the not-for-profit sector, so I went with the um, with the charity. We rehomed it into a larger London charity, and then spent a couple of years with them, um, learning really or relearning actually a lot of the skill sets and how they applied in a not-for-profit um, environment, and brought that kind of commercial element too, which I think was was really beneficial. And from there, then I spent some time with a, a membership organization. Again, that, this was an NGO, so completely different, very much um, members coming together to work for a, a shared a shared interest and passion, actually. They were really passionate about advocating for evidence-based medicine. So the organization is Cochrane, who produced Cochrane Reviews. And it was my first experience of working with academics, um, research, research institutions, um, hospitals, and the healthcare sector, and really starting to cut through the noise of what that looked like. And, and publishing was a big part of this. So learning about the publishing industry, open access, um, fascinating, completely different business model. And then I moved into, I wanted to see what the funding side of the sector looked like. So I had some time with social investment business. They um, provide grants and loan funding into the social investment and not-for-profit sector. 
um, incredibly amazing the work that they do. But for me, it was one step removed. So they were the funder in the middle of sort of the very large funders, government or otherwise, and then the organisations delivering impact and the work. And that's what I really wanted to get back to. So the role came up with Make-A-Wish um, and I couldn't wish for a more impactful um impact and outcomes driven organization that is is just incredible oh absolutely and I was telling you before the show actually like make a wish is one of those charities I've always loved and admired from afar so it's it's wonderful so tell for those of you those that are listening that may not know what make a wish does do you want to just tell us a little bit about the charity how it started and where the idea came from Yeah, of course. So Make-A-Wish is a global organisation. So globally, it started in 1980. And we're here because of uh, a boy called Chris Grecius, who in 1980 was age seven, and he had a wish to be a police officer. Uh, He was living in Phoenix, Arizona, and his local community came together to grant his wish just days before he died. And that was the start of Make-A-Wish globally. So we have granted over 520,000 wishes globally. We've got over 43,000 volunteers. Um, and it's it's a global movement, um, passionate about granting wishes for critically ill children. And in the UK, our story started in 1986. We had three volunteers granting the first wish. Um, this year, we've got over 300 volunteers. And to date, we've granted 16,000 wishes, which is absolutely incredible until you put the stats of how many children need us. So there's 60,000 plus children in the UK today that we could help if we had the resources to do so. So to put that in context, in 36 years, we've only reached 27% of the children who need us today. So we've got a lot more to do. Absolutely. And what a mission to be moving forwards with as well. So tell us a bit about your role, Um, because one of the things I find interesting is that you have the title Director of Finance and Technology. Now, technology tends to be hidden in the finance role, but with yours, it's obviously front and centre. So, so, I don't know, was that a title that that was created and you walked into, or is it something that's developed over time as you've been with the organisation? It's a good question. So, just so not for profit roles for finance are never just finance because organizations can't ever afford the size of leadership teams that they would like to have. So it does come. And part of that is the interest that comes with that. Um, for Make-A-Wish, my role was new to Make-A-Wish in um, September, August, September time of uh, the year before last. So I came in as an interim finance uh, director, but knew that this change was coming up. And so it was specifically to add technology because at that point, all of the tech was outsourced. So there wasn't anybody internally who had technology as their remit. Um, and what had been recognized for the organization was actually just how important technology and the infrastructure that it enables and creates was going to be in our mission to scale to reach every eligible child. And so how, and that's a, that's a really interesting statement you've just made there about the importance of technology for the, to achieve the mission. How does Make-A-Wish see technology as part of their strategy? So for us, technology sits and we have four goals to achieve our strategy and we sit within goal three, which is organizational capability and the recognition that in order to 
to achieve all that you need to. As an organization, you have to be fit for purpose. Your capability to deliver in a networked way and a devolved uh, an environment where you can devolve power, decision-making um, to local communities, which is what our strategy is, is absolutely underpinned by. You can only do that with effective tools because otherwise everything is relational. You have no quality control. You have no mechanism for communication. Um, everything takes a long time. It's not intuitive. And, you know, the biggest part of this is We've got three values, magical, inclusive, and inspiring. There is nothing worse than a process flow that is none of those things. If, if, you, if you're a donor and you want to donate money and it's difficult, you're not going to do it. If you're a volunteer who wants to grant wishes, you're here to grant wishes, not wrestle with infrastructure that doesn't work for you. It's, it's got to be straightforward and simple. And, you know, our families and our wish children, they deserve to have the best experience. So we really need to think about how do we make sure that everybody's experience, however they interact and engage with Make-A-Wish, is magical. Yeah, and, and I don't think the word magical is often used in combination with technology. Though it can, when it works well, it can be magical, as you, as you say. So tell us a little bit about how you approach the strategy behind technology. Um, you know, as when you're thinking about what kind of technology you would use, how you approach, and how you prioritize as well, because that must be the biggest challenge as a not-for-profit. Where do you spend the money? Because it's so difficult to choose sometimes. Yeah. And, and this was the hardest thing, Hannah, because coming in with no internal resource at all. So you were almost having to pick up and try and evaluate what was in place. And we had fantastic support from a volunteer CTO at that time who had been supporting, but again, from a distance. And what we really needed to do was to make sure that in-house, we had those core skill sets aligned to what people were actually doing. Because one of the challenges, and you've probably seen this yourself, is if you impose things on people, really want to use it. If it's a tool that enables them to do things uh, more efficiently, effectively, this this is brilliant. You, You know, you're halfway there before you've started. So what we did was look at the different areas. And for us, that fell into three categories. So that was looking at our technology infrastructure. So everything from our platforms that we used, were they server-based, were they cloud-based, how safe and secure were our systems, what was our hardware like for our teams and our uh, comms tools as well. So this was really thinking about moving into, uh, moving away from servers, moving into a cloud-based environment um, that really supported better connectivity. So we were able to secure share files to make sure people had logins that allowed them access to our systems and also gave us um, phone systems because actually what we didn't want was our volunteers having to, for example, use their personal uh, devices to contact families. So, so that was really important. The second part for us was what was our um, our operating system? How do we have a hub that everybody, whether you were a member of, of staff or you were a volunteer, that you could engage with and, and you understood where a wish was on its journey? Because if you imagine absolutely everything from that first call to a family, perhaps the referral that happened before that, all the way through to a wish being granted, all of that needed to sit somewhere centrally. And we needed to make sure that our end-to-end wish granting journey was really easy to engage with and also scalable. So what we had found was because it had been built outsourced, it was very restrictive. It was a one-to-one relationship. So you would effectively take a wish through from start to finish, which is fine in a small environment, but actually it doesn't scale. 
you've got to find ways of people interacting in different ways. So that was really looking at was our CRM fit for purpose. And then the third area was really thinking about data and analytics. So how did we build a structure that enabled us to put um, information in the hands of the right people so they could immediately take the decisions that they needed to and remove those layers of hierarchy or that the whole historic thing of waiting till month end for reports you know that's that's not where we need to be and particularly for us as, as I'm sure we'll talk about we were moving into a world where we'd recognize that we weren't just talking about cash anymore we were talking about gifts in kind and that was a huge part of our strategy and a gifts in kind is where you could donate a goods or service directly to a wish that doesn't have a cash value but actually it is a resource that needs to be matched to requirement so for us to be able to do this successfully we needed data and we needed tools to be able to do that and so bringing all those three things together was meeting our mission that was about every wish being as unique as the child who wishes for it and we don't know what a child's going to wish for until they do so we can't plan for any of that we needed a system and a structure that the minute a child wished it sent up this beacon and an alert to our networked community that said there's a wish here you can help in these ways. And we just didn't have the tech infrastructure to help us to do that. Um, so that was the challenge. Um, and that's where we started. Oh, wow. So a very small mission that you set for yourself. To very achieve. small mission, yes. And, uh, <laughs> and that was literally, what, two years ago that you started on this journey? Yeah, probably. I mean, just it's not much more yes. than just over a year, actually. I mean, the organization has been working on wow. this since about 2018. So they recognized the need, but we didn't, we hadn't really had that investment in an internal skill set. And I suppose the creative imagination that then comes from that, because you've got to be, you've got to be curious, you've got to be prepared to fail, you've got to be prepared to try things. And actually coming into post, that was probably the biggest challenge was kind of saying, well, we've, we've sort of tried some of these things and we've got a CRM, but it's not quite working. And that doesn't mean to say it's not good. We just need to realign some pieces. We need to build, we need to build out from where we are. And it was that whole bit of saying to people, actually, do you know what? We can do this. Um, so yes, it has only been unbelievably just over a year, but we are just at the point now of going into uh, UAT testing for this new end-to-end wish granting process that we will roll out to our teams in January. And I couldn't be prouder of the effort, the work and the love that's gone into it and, you know, the incredible impact it's going to make. It it does sound incredible. And I think what's really interesting about this is that I think there's two things that you said that I found really insightful and I'm hoping our listeners got that. I think the first thing is just because the tool isn't currently working for you doesn't mean it's not the right tools. I think there is a tendency to, to, to look at systems and go, oh, if it's not working now, it will never work. And there's, and given the investment that people make in systems and the, the cost of it, I think that's a really important piece. It's wonderful that you guys have taken a step back and gone, actually, we're just not using it to the best of, our, of its capability. And secondly, I think what's also interesting is obviously your use case is quite unique. I don't know many other businesses or organizations that are using it, using um, CRM to grant wishes to children. So how did you approach scoping out the processes What you know, and getting the team on board as part of this rethinking of your, your systems and your processes? 
Well, this is where the finance bit kicks in. So one of the benefits of having come up through um, of a certain age where systems didn't really do things. So you had to learn how you <laughs> could get information out of finance <laughs> systems in the optics. And that makes you very good at process mapping and actually looking at, well, if I want to achieve this, then I need to structure things in a particular way. And one of the observations I had coming in was we were doing a lot of things in terms of our month end process for finance that were very akin to manufacturing. So we were, we were putting through what we called a wish provision. So we had to recognize the costs associated with wishes in the same way you would do for kind of a work in progress in a manufacturing environment. But we weren't using any of the t- tools or techniques linked to that. We were doing this all in an incredibly manual, difficult, challenging way that meant our forecasting was all over the place. And, you know, back to what where we're starting from, we don't know what the child's going to wish for. So we've got so many levels of assumptions in here. And, and then we're trying to structure without a framework that is helping us. So I thought, well, why don't we use product thinking as you would do for manufacturing? Because actually, we have four wish types. We have to be something, to go somewhere, to meet, or to have. Now, they have other things that sit underneath them, but broadly, they're categories. And people did look at me like I was mad, because how can you have a unique wish for a child and categorize it? But you can, because if you want to be something or someone there's certain things that you're probably going to have to have. You're going to want, if you want to be a princess, be a princess, Hannah, today. So you want to be a princess, you need an outfit. You might need shoes. You might need a a, a venue to be a princess in. Now, those things would be the same if you wanted to be an elf. You would need an outfit and you would need a venue and you would need the things to stage the wishes, if you like. So we worked out that we could, using product thinking, take this into the way that we built this out. And all of a sudden, that opened up all sorts of tools for us because the world thinks like that. So if we could categorize what we needed to do in a way that we could make it easy for people to engage with us, we could suddenly push out requirements. So what we've been able to do in our new way of working is build a wish design process that captures the wish story into these kind of, if you like, more generic wish types and allows that to push a request out through our Gifts in Kind app that will say to you, actually, for your princess wish over here, I need a costume and it needs to look like this and this is the size. And you can say, okay, I can I can do that. And we can then match that back through the requirements in the system and back to our month end process much easier because we have a live document that says, here's all the stock items that we're requesting effectively through Gifts in Kind. Here's the ones we've had donated. Here are the gaps so we can manage and monitor that. This is what it means for our cash flow. This is what we need to purchase. And it really helps us to better target resource to requirement just from changing the way we think about how we grant wishes. That's wonderful. So you're basically creating a bill of materials. So I've worked through manufacturing. You're basically creating a bill of materials for a wish, which is a, a much, which makes absolute sense to me. I know if I was going to be a princess, I'd expect my tiara, my sparkly heels and my lovely big princess dress. So no, absolutely. Because that's very much design, isn't it? Critical thinking, taking a step back and dissecting the problem. What other key sort of changes in maybe thought as much as process did you have to make? Well, we had to keep the heart in what was going to become a more automated process. So it is intentionally designed to have wish magic as part of every wish, which is totally separate to that bill of materials approach so that however much these there are common elements to a, a type of wish, 
it will be completely bespoke for an individual child because it will have their requirements linked to wish magic and that was really important to us because we really didn't want this to feel like a an automated process it's absolutely not that it was but you know it's giving the right tools to our wish granters so that they were spending their time on wish magic not wish admin so i always find it really hard to explain to people why they should choose itas as their financial transformation or sage partner so rather than me tell you how awesome we are i'm gonna let our customers do it so we decided to go with ITAS because when we were looking for a partner, we felt that they not only took the time to understand our business and they knew the needs of everyone on the team or everyone that would be using the system, but they also were very transparent in kind of what they could do, what they couldn't do. And prior to having us, you know, sign anything or make any agreements, they held meetings with us to walk them through our processes and our business so that they really understood everything that would need to be done and give give us realistic timelines as well. And another thing was because we were so new and we didn't have a current system going, um, we were looking for something that we could implement rather quickly, but also do it correctly. And we felt that ITAS would be able to do achieve both of those in terms of yeah, understanding our business and, and implementing it how we wanted it, but also doing it in our rather quick timeline absolutely and and i guess that bespoke element is the key to making the magic and making it so personalized to that child like you say every every wish for every child should be unique to them and their own experience absolutely and and from a finance perspective what did you in finance have to think about and change to be able to deliver on this mission well it's really interesting because um Obviously, cash, we all know we have to account for it in a particular way and and we know how to do that. There's not really any rule books around how you account for gifts in kind. And there is some guidance there. But actually, from a charity commission um, point of view, the legislation around this doesn't want to overburden charities. So what it says is if you can capture that information and record it and substantiate it, you can show it in your financial statements. But if you can't, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really matter as much. It's not the same. It doesn't have the same levels of, of scrutiny, I don't think, as, as cash does. But for us to explain to our um, donors, to explain to our families, actually the resource that's available to us and what we do with that, it's incredibly important. So we had to really think about, okay, well, we might not have to do it, but we do want to do it. And that was a change from what we've done previously. So we put a lot more care and attention into how do we almost replicate the same processes that we've got for cash for gifts in kind what does that mean how do we show that because even though in the accounts it's a straight in and out you've got a debit and credit and the bottom line doesn't change but obviously it's material when you're talking about wishes where they're a hundred percent provided by gifts in kind not cash funding so in terms of demonstrating um, effective use into impact so important. So that was really, there was a re-education of us to say, well, we might not have to do this, but for us to be able to scale and to move forward, we need to think differently and we need to adjust our metrics accordingly so that we both account for and can explain set KPIs and measures around gifts in kind, because without them, we'll never achieve our strategy to reach every child. Absolutely. And, and in terms of the, the education and almost the, the, the hearts and minds piece behind that change and that transformation, how did you approach that? 
It was challenging. Well, it's still, I'm saying it was, it still is challenging because ultimately across the organization, um, I think once you start to democratize data, and this is really important because all of these elements mm. have al- always been there within the organization. They just haven't all been together cohesively in a way that everybody can see and take decisions on. So you've, first of all, you've got to work out that, okay, have we asked the right questions? Do we understand what it is that we need to do and what's really going to build up um, KPIs into a successful output so we do achieve all that we're setting out to? We then need to bring that those those um, diverse data sets together somehow and make sure that we are measuring things in the same way because what we found was different people within the organization would have two different measures for the same metric. So actually, no, we're reporting on this now, so we need consistency of approach. Um, and, and that's coming through training. And one of the things that we found incredibly helpful with all of this was as we built more out within our CRM, we were able to share reporting and dashboards and live data. And all of a sudden, everybody got quite excited by this because nobody really minded them where it came from. It was what you could do with it. Suddenly, you didn't have to worry about producing. It was there. And then you could have the, the meeting suddenly became about what we were doing rather than just collecting and creating and and historical data it was forward looking so I think we're, we're still on that journey of getting everybody on board with this and as I say we've got this whole rollout to come in January but we found breaking it down into small chunks that are digestible taking the time to provide the training and support that individuals need and and recognizing some people need more support other people just want to play with the system and get their hands in there and, and see where that goes um, and then the biggest change for us has been accepting that if we want to be truly agile and respond to each individual wish, our planning and the way that we work also has to be agile. So we can't anymore do this annual cycle of budgeting and planning. We've got to do a quarterly review forecast. We've really got to get good at working with uncertainty. Um, and I think that's helping us actually. It's helping us to know that sometimes we get things right. Sometimes we need to adjust, um, but it's that continuous test and learn. So I don't know if that answers. That sounds like a very long ramble through a variety of things. <laughs> But I think it was some great points. I'm actually going to pick each some of those up okay. um, in a bit more detail, if that's all right with you. So, because I, I think there's some great points in there. So, the first thing is about um, the power of real time reporting, and and I I think this is always fascinating for those that have experienced it. They understand the value of it, but if for those, it's trying to explain like how the organization shifts once you start to provide that and how to take away the fear <laughs> of giving people information. Cause there is, there is this assumption, isn't there? Once you start giving people information, they're going to start questioning everything and checking everything and coming back to you with a billion and one answers. So tell me a bit about how you approached um, that. Did you have any challenges where people were? worried about surfacing this information or was it very much a we we need this we need to make this step so a bit of both so obviously for us some data is um highly confidential and we needed to make sure that our teams were confident that we had the right levels of data privacy in place so that the we weren't we weren't exposing any data that we shouldn't be was the first thing. So we had to make sure we had the right controls in place. We then needed to also reassure for the use case. So what was it that was important? So we were already producing a monthly report 
but it was another thing that everybody had to do. So actually moving those metrics into a dashboard that just just created itself. That was a great thing. So then the time was taken on really thinking about the narrative and explaining why rather than, as I say, the creation of the data and then getting people confident and comfortable to use that real-time data set that they probably hadn't had access to before to help inform their work. And when they saw how powerful that was for themselves, it suddenly, the penny dropped a little bit that actually, if that's working for me over here, my colleagues are going to be able to take better decisions because they don't have to ask me. What they might ask me is, what does this mean? And, and so I think it becomes about communication, about shared understanding because everybody starts from the same place you haven't got somebody who's got more knowledge than than another person although skill sets there are some absolute dashboard wizards who've become very very popular within the organization (laughs) yeah that's it you soon start to see them sneaking out don't you oh can we just I'm just going to tweak this for you, you know, I'm just going to put this new uh, display on this uh, report. So, but that's wonderful. So actually by starting to ex- to share data across the organization, it then starts, you created that snowball effect, as I like to call it, like rolling the power of data through the organization. Yeah, absolutely. And and also a recognition that data is incredibly important. So we've had to do a lot of work to make sure that it's clean, that it's usable, and and a real awareness that if you pay attention to that, the dividends are huge, but you've got, it's got to be something front and center when you are designing, making sure that you've got everything in the right places. Because, you know, the, the amount of effort that goes into data migration, we did, you know, we have been changing from legacy systems to new systems. And actually, one of the projects that took much longer was a big piece of data migration. It's done now. It's just transformative, but it was a real headache to actually get it to where it needed to be. I think people underestimate with any new system, whether it's finance, whether it's CRM, the the both the importance and the time that it takes to migrate data well. Um, it's one of, for me, it's one of the things that people, they both know they've got an issue and a challenge there, but it's almost swept under the carpet when they're thinking about allocating time. I think a lot about training and testing, but not a huge amount about migration. So how did you approach the, the process of um, both, you know, bringing together data sets? Because it sounds like there was a bit of um, designing out your data structures internally and what you're going to use and share data dictionaries or however you want to call it, but also actually migration of that data. It started with recognition that we just didn't have the in-house skills to do some of this ourselves. And however much we wanted to, and however much we intended to, we needed expert help because it, it was it was too much for, for the team. So I think really properly evaluating your internal skill set is the first thing and then how your internal skill set supports we had some external help to do this to make sure that the mapping was right so that the team were very much in control of okay so what will this look like when it's finished how do we bring these data sets together and I think most importantly what is our source of truth and how many versions of that are we going to have? Because what we saw certainly between the CRM and the finance system was historically both of them had exactly the same information, um, duplicating effort, 
which it just didn't need to be. And what we needed to do is to take a step back in terms of data and really think about one data set, the best environment to hold that in and the, you know, almost the split between how was one going to keep the checks and balances of the other so that we had the right level of granularity and content in our data and understanding where that mapped across, even if the data sets were slightly different. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a really good piece. And for, and for me as well, is almost defining what that shared data looks like and agreeing a definition can be sometimes um, interesting to approach, especially when you're talking about finance and CRM, because they're two very different perspectives of the same piece of data, aren't they? Yeah. And I think also for us, one of the things that we've had to look quite closely at is is income recognition. So, you know, part of what we have to do is obviously we are working to metrics to uh, to raise funding. But then equally, if funding is against a specific wish type, that's only recognised at the point that those wishes are, are granted. So what does that mean in terms of, does that mean that it isn't recognised or someone doesn't have recognition at the point that they've actually done their job and brought that income in successfully just because we can't use it at that point in time. And and that's true of whether that's cash or gifts in kind. So I think also taking the time to explain why different data sets are important and how we use them and how we bridge from one to the other is incredibly important. And you don't always get it right first time. You need a few goes at it and, and, and they iterate, don't they? I think is the important bit to say too. And how did you deliver that education? Was that something you consciously did, as in you sat people down, explained the different data sets from both sides and why they were important and why you collected the data at different points? Or is there another mechanism or did it just come about by chance? Oh, it definitely didn't come about by chance. We wouldn't be there if that was the case. No, I mean, what we really fell back (laughs) on was business partnering. So at its heart, what you are charged with doing, whether you're working with finance or technologies, mapping infrastructure and tools and support to what the organisation is delivering. And so business partnering and the principles of making sure that you are coming together, that education is shared and you're bringing that subject matter expert in finance or tech together with the business expert in terms of what they need to deliver. So for us, that was instituting a month-end meeting, first of all, between finance and the budget holders to really go through their numbers in detail to make sure that it was part and parcel of their the tools that they were using rather than just another thing that they needed to do. And that really helped to show the benefits and as I say, move us into that agile reforecasting quarterly way of working rather than static numbers. Um, and I think more on the tech side, it was providing the same support, but in a bespoke way to teams. So basically opening up, um, we've got everything from an online ticketing system where our teams can raise a ticket to say, I would like a report to booking in time with somebody just to sit down and spend an hour saying, okay, let's have a look. Should we create you a dashboard? What are the key things that you're doing? Um, and drop-in sessions. So I, I think the the critical bit with this is business partnering needs to happen regularly on a monthly basis, but the tools and the support that individuals need should be that. They should be individual and be part of an ongoing dialogue. And that's what we've worked really hard to get that balance um, across all teams. Yeah. And what I love about that is actually, like you say, the the agreement around data definition sounds like a technology piece, but actually it's a key part of finance business partnering and that on, it's an ongoing piece of work and an ongoing piece of communication that organizations need to think about and I, I, that's a really 
interesting way of describing it. And I think a lot of people will think, oh, yeah, why, why aren't we using our business partners to support that and to drive that forwards? So, so obviously, this has been a massive shift for you as an organization and a big piece of change. And it sounds like it's going incredibly well, which is very exciting. So um, in terms of, I'm a, well, personally, I'm a big believer in hearts and minds when it comes to transformation, because in my experience, it doesn't matter how great the people are, or the processes, how great the processes are, how great the technology is. If you don't have the people behind it driving it forwards, then, you know, success is not assured. So how did you approach that? And how did you get the teams together and drive things to deliver on this success? Yeah, it's a good question. There were points where I wondered if I was in an alternative universe because when you're at the very beginning part of it and you can see the end point and you're thinking, I've got to articulate all these steps to get there. Um, for me, the the key bit was putting the right team around this. So, so when people are frightened or positional or worried, they won't become curious. And if they don't become curious, then you can't play in a space that says, okay, this is exciting. We know we want to do this really difficult thing over here. What does it look like? So that was the first thing was to actually make sure that we had, it didn't matter what had gone before. It didn't matter how negative people felt about things. We had a real agreement that we were going to set that to one side and focus on outcomes and what we wanted to achieve collectively together as a team. Um, And then also picking picking your battles, I think. So there were things that we could get on and do without having to engage too widely. So we could do something and then we could demonstrate something. And that really helped. So part of the um, transformation build, we were fortunate enough to be successful within a, a major grant program where it was a pro bono um, skills-based delivery that helped us to build part of the infrastructure. And what that meant was that we were suddenly working in a different way, showing how we could transform not only what we were able to deliver, but the way that we were going to do it. We could find partners who would work with us without necessarily needing funding. And all of a sudden, that did get the attention of the rest of the organization because it's quite interesting now. Um, you're, you're building out something to take these uh, non-cash donations through a scheme that's also non-cash. This, this, is, this is good. And I think for us, that was the thing was, was explaining this is a journey. We are stewards of a, uh, an organization at a point in time. And it's our responsibility to do the best that we can for our wish children. We put them front and center of everything we do. And we just kept coming back to that. What is it that we need to do to make this the best experience to reach as many children as we can? And that really helped us to keep, keep that in mind. And the other thing we do, and it's, it's not just for the, for the project, but we start, Within any of our team meetings and our organizational meetings, we start with wish stories. We have Feedback Friday where we share the output of the wishes because I think when you go through significant pieces of transformation, it is hard and it's technically difficult and it's challenging and you must remember why you're doing it. This isn't about technology. It's not about finance. It's about critically ill children having the most amazing magical wish granted and that motivates people and wins hearts. You don't need to do much more than that. You are in a very special place in that you have a very, very impactful mission statement to work to, to be very fair, Sarah. So that obviously is a, a massive driver. So for anybody that's listening, that is looking, perhaps doesn't have the 
the emotional impact of your mission and is looking to approach a finance transformation or a technology project, what are the key things that you would say to them before they start? What do they need to think about? Be really clear from the outset what it is you want to achieve. Because as soon as you start to look at solutions that are going to support you, they can do all sorts of other clever things. And you can very easily get distracted, as can people around you. And the other thing, the re- other reason for doing that is, do you know what? There will be cost-effective solutions that will be probably 80, 85% of the way to what you want to do off the shelf, not bespoke, cost you far, far less. And if you hold in mind what you want to do and how far you can get, um, that really helps when you see these beautifully shiny things and you, you have to stop and think, okay, what's the thing I want to do? And does that look nice? Because, because it's very difficult once you start. So I would say be really clear about your requirements. If you can't articulate them, you will build the wrong thing and you, you can't explain it to somebody else. So if you can't explain what you want, you will never ever have the solution that's going to work for you. And, and to your point you made about people saying, well, this isn't working. I need to step away. Well, oftentimes that's because requirements weren't clearly articulated. So spend the time on requirements gathering and it will pay huge dividends later on. Know the problem you're about to solve before you actually try and solve it. So I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. There's some very wise words there, Sarah. And uh, yeah, kid in a sweetie shop. I, I often use that terminology. Working in technology it is very easy to get excited about this great piece of technology, but it all comes back to what you're trying to solve for the customers that you're working with. So I think that's some brilliant advice. So do take heed, listeners. Sarah has very, very well summed up um, how to approach your next finance or technology transformation project. And I think that goes for whether that is process or technology, actually, um, in terms of um, a philosophy to keep in mind. Sorry, Hannah, I was just going to add to that. I was just going to say that I think don't build in isolation because this will have to integrate with something somewhere and make sure you've got the right team around you so that you don't just have something that works for you. It actually advances the mission of everybody. And that also helps with the hearts and minds piece. There is a tendency for finance to see their systems for them alone versus thinking about what it, what it means to the wider organization. And there was a very, on the podcast previously, I had a very interesting quote from another CFO. And I thought this was very accurate in that Finance defines the pace at which the business moves. Um, and you don't realize it, but the way, the, the pace at which finance delivers data, delivers insight, delivers partnering is, is what actually supports the business to grow and move. So, and if you don't, if you don't know if you're behind, then you probably are, which is, I think, his assessment. So I think that's a really, really interesting insight. I think so. And the other thing we found is that finance also defines how much responsibility other teams take. So if you want your business partners to support, you've got to encourage them to not take the decisions for the business owners. You know, the business owner holds their budget, they take the decisions. Finance helps them to do that. And I think being really cognizant of that is incredibly important. Oh, another really insightful comment. You're you're full of them today, Sarah. And I think that is really accurate because there is a traditional viewpoint of finance, isn't there? That they are the people that say no. And actually, it's not about saying no. It's about saying, this is your resource. How do you want to use it? Mm. 
Absolutely. And and really making sure then that you're taking shared decisions in the interest of the organization because you have the knowledge, both from a an expertise point of view, from a financial perspective, and also the delivery perspective from the business owner. Oh yes. And and the and I guess what brings it really home is the fact that the decisions that you and your team make impacts, you know, has such a big impact on children. What, you know, worldwide, not obviously just UK because Make-A-Wish is international. So before we finish, um, tell us a little bit about some upcoming campaigns. If anybody wants to get involved in what you are doing and helping support and deliver on those wonderful wishes, how can they do that? So um, first thing to say is head over to our website, www.makeawish.org.uk. We have a Christmas appeal which shares Ellie's story. So Ellie um, was a rush wish when she came to us. And a rush wish for us is children whose prognosis has deteriorated. We know that they don't have, um, their life isn't going to be as long as, as might have been expected. And um, what she really wanted, she loved Christmas. And um, from the time she was three, her favourite thing to do was to drive around and look at all the Christmas lights and so her wish was inspired by the festive light tradition and um, she had her whole uh, street lit up for a really special Christmas Um, the whole street was lit up by lights just like Ellie lit up all of her lives around her and people came from all over the neighborhood to do this Um, It's worth saying that less than a month later on the day that her Christmas lights were switched on, um, Ellie passed away. She was just 17 years old. Her family really value the wish. They have told us that it was incredibly important for them that they knew that the end of Ellie's life was so special and they were able to give her this gift that was so connected to all they had done together. So if anybody is thinking of giving a gift at Christmas, um, we can help other children living with critical conditions like Ellie if you do so. And how can people support? Is it donations? Like you say, gifts in kind? What's uh, What kind of support do you need as an organisation? So there's lots of ways to get involved. So that's obviously monetary through giving a, a donation of, of cash. We also have volunteering. So you can register to be a volunteer with us to help and support us, um, both capture wish stories from children, also build wish anticipation and grant wishes. So you can register to be a volunteer. We have lots of events. If you're a keen runner and you're thinking about that you might want to train for the London Marathon next year as a New Year's resolution, you can sign up as a wish hero and run for us in one of our challenge events. You could, uh, some of my team, for my team did a skydive last week to raise money for uh, critically ill children. You could jump out of a plane for us, really anything. You could bake a cake, anything at all, Christmas lights, switch-ons, whatever it is, um, the, the, the support would be amazing. And our, our Gifting Kind um, app is launching in in February. So keep an eye out for news around that. And that will allow you to donate directly goods and services to wishes for children. And you'll know exactly where that's going. So that's going to be really, really incredible when that happens. Very exciting. It's amazing what what transformation and technology can deliver. So thank you so much, Sarah, for being part of the podcast and for sharing both your story and obviously the story of Make-A-Wish with us. And um, yes, I'm wishing you and the team all the very best. And thank you so much for sharing you know, your insight and your, your vision. Thank you for inviting me, Hannah. It's been lovely to meet you. Hey, everyone. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. Um, And just a really quick Christmas update for you. 
sparkly jumper and all. Um, like everyone, as much as we love this podcast, we think it's really important to take a break. So we will be taking a very short break over the Christmas period to relax, um, maybe get some new inspiration over the festive season. But we will be back in the new year and we've got some fabulous shows on New Year's resolutions um, and, you know, kicking off 2023 with a bang. So we'll be sitting and waiting to release nice and early in January. January. Um, if I can get my words right. So please do relax, enjoy. Um, and if you're absolutely desperate to listen to just more fabulous episodes, don't forget we have a huge back catalogue of content. We've been doing the podcast for a number of years now, literally since lockdown. So it's um, there's huge amounts of great guests and some of our old episodes are my favourites. Um, and of course, don't forget to check out our webinars and our fin- financial transformation live sessions on YouTube. We've been doing those monthly. So there's a huge amount of content which should hopefully keep you distracted. Um, I hope that everyone listening to this has a wonderful Christmas and a very happy new year. And let's all um, come back in 2023, refreshed and excited to start the year. Have a great Christmas, everyone. Take care. Bye. Now, for the one million pound question. What is the best finance software for your business? Is it A. Sage 50? Is it B. Sage 200 Standard? C. Sage 200 Professional? Or D. Sage Intact? An impossible question to answer without a lifeline. But we have the perfect lifeline for you. Our free quiz, Which Sage Product is Right for You? We'll tell you which product is the best fit for your business in just five minutes. All you need to do is head to www.itassolutions.co.uk and answer a few simple questions.